We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My female friends and clients tell me, when you're 20-something, as a woman, there's a great choice of men out there. If you fall out of one relationship, it doesn't matter, because you can quickly fall into another. However, when you're 40 or 50-something, the picture can look very different, especially if you have a couple of children as well. My witness is Dr. Mari McLeod, who is an evolutionary biologist and a dating consultant. It's not every day you meet such a a strange combination of uh, professions. And her speciality is helping women in midlife find a partner for a happy relationship, having been through this challenging process herself. Mari is the founder of Dating Evolved and runs online programs and coaches women in small groups. Welcome. Now, you started your career studying monkeys in South Africa. So how do they deal with finding a mate? Hi, Andrew. It's great to be here. Yeah, things are a bit simpler for monkeys, but yeah, they they have their challenges too. And uh, female monkeys have to, you know, try and avoid the bad guys and and go for a good guy. And uh, they sometimes have to to kind of go off and and find a new guy out in the forest, uh, far away from the prying eyes of their troop male. But then they can, you know, get some new males to to come around and um, take over the group. So they do actually have a lot of choice, even though it doesn't look like it from the first instance. So how did you actually become interested in the whole subject of evolutionary biology? Well, um, I did my first degree in biology. Um, Then I kind of accidentally fell into being a monkey keeper in a sanctuary down in Cornwall in England. I went as a volunteer for a couple of weeks and ended up staying for three years. And I just loved it. I was looking after woolly monkeys. These are Amazonian monkeys. And I was just really fascinated with their behaviour. So after my stint as, as a monkey keeper, I decided to go back to university and study animal behaviour properly, you know, as a postgrad. And I you know, I'm very privileged. I managed to travel all over the world to study different animals. And I had a couple of years doing my PhD fieldwork in South Africa. And that's um, where I was studying mating strategies of, of monkeys there. So are you in the middle of nowhere doing this? Kind of. I was at a place called Cape Vidal, which is on the coast. And it was coastal dune forest that the monkeys lived in. So, you know, I had the arduous task of living by this beautiful subtropical beach in a caravan and, and trogging out during the day, you know, following monkeys around all day in the forest. And it was, it was amazing. It was such a privilege to, to do that. And it was, it was fascinating, all the things I found out about them. It's a real soap opera really going on. So you finish studying the monkeys, you come back to the UK and you meet somebody, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So I I was writing up my PhD in London. Um, I was at UCL there. And during that period, I met my first husband. And, you know, I was was a research student and I was kind of bowled over by by this guy. Um, It was all very exciting. He earned lots of money and we went to exciting places and 
Yeah, it was, it was quite thrilling. And then we ended up getting married. But I, I realise now that back then I was, I was kind of choosing with my gut instinct instead of my kind of conscious brain in terms of what to look out for. What did your gut instinct want then? My gut instinct was looking for bad boys, you know, um, like oh. a, a lot of women were. <laughs> you know, I was attracted to this sort of dominance and high status and extroversion and, and things like that. A lot of women are attracted to these things. But what I've discovered in, you know, my study of biology is that, you know, a, a lot of our, our gut instincts evolved back in the Stone Age. You know, we've evolved behaviours that help our reproduction and survival back in the day. And so what we look for are maybe things that would have been good back then, but we, we needed different things then from relationships. You know, relationships tended to be shorter term. A woman would need to look for a, a strong, tough guy to kind of dominate other men, get her resources, you know. Elbow other people out of the way. Yes, and make sure she didn't get kind of harassed by other other men or 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 predators or any, you know, any bad things. But we need different things now and we need different things at different stages of life. And so my contention is that, you know, we need to consciously evolve our strategies around finding a partner so that it suits us in the modern world and for the life stage that we're at. Um, and that can mean doing very different things to what we might initially be drawn to doing. Because that's the thing as a man that I've never really understood women's love of bad boys. They sort almost sort of got tattooed across their head, you know, danger, keep away. <laughs> and yet people flock to them. Yeah. And it's because of these kind of evolved desires and motivations. You know, it, it makes sense in some respects to go for that type of guy. You know, if you're in a a very different environment where people have to fight over resources and things and you need that for your children. But if you're um, especially an older woman looking for a good companion, someone to have a good conversation with, someone who cares about you and, and is going to be empathetic in the long term, then you need a, a completely different kind of person. So how old were you when your marriage broke up? I was in my early 30s. And you had three children as well? Yeah, well, I was, sorry, I got that wrong. I was 36 um, when my marriage broke up. And yeah, I had some very small children. I mean, I had two baby girls, they were twins, uh, they are twins and a son. And yeah, it was a very difficult time. But as the years went on, you know, when they grew up a bit, obviously, initially, I was spending all my time looking after the kids. But uh, I'd started thinking, oh, well, maybe it's time for me to find a new partner. So I started trying to get out there again. I started online dating. Um, so just before we find out about that, you yeah. know, I'd just like to know your state of mind when you've returned to the dating pool for the first time in a long time. You are a totally different person because of all the experiences you've had and your priorities are totally different. And I'm guessing that dating had also changed a lot. So how were you feeling as you set off into this new jungle? <laughs> I suppose I, I was quite hopeful. I, I imagined that, you know, oh, online dating, there's a whole selection of people to choose from and it's going to be easy. We just kind of make contact with people and then meet up and hey, presto, that'll be fine. <laughs> a bit like shopping on Amazon. You just put them in your basket and check them out and yeah, off you go. But it didn't work out that way, as you might no? imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had... so what, what happened? Um, I did meet some guys. 
I had a few dates. I did have one quite long-term relationship, which was sort of long distance with a guy in France. Um, I met him in Scotland, but he was subsequently in France. But these relationships just never met my needs. They, they, they didn't meet my need for kind of a, a sort of committed, you know, stable relationship, basically. So I was still picking the wrong kind of guy. So why do you think you were still picking the wrong kind of guy? Because I was still stuck in my old ideas of what was attractive. And, and uh, yeah, but during that time, I was also working as a freelance science journalist and I was writing about behaviour. Uh, started off a lot about, you know, monkey behaviour, primate behaviour, but also then moved on to human behaviour. And that became more and more about attraction and relationships. And so I was going to conferences, I was interviewing academics, um, some of my old contacts, but new ones as well. And, you know, I learned so much about the science behind our evolved motivations and what we desire and are attracted to. And then, you know, eventually I realised I've got the answers here. You know, I've got what I need <laughs> to kind of figure out a proper strategy that's actually going to work with my evolved psyche, you know, and that that's that's so important because if you ignore our evolved um, psychology, then, you know, you're not going to really be successful. So I worked out a strategy around how I should actually go about meeting and, and identifying and finding a good guy for a good long-term relationship. And I'm happy to see I was successful in that endeavour. <laughs> and we'll find out a bit in a moment about that. But I'm, I'm just sort of amused that here you were researching all of this and then you suddenly thought, hang on, this applies to me too. You know, what was the eureka moment where you thought, I'll connect the dots between the two things? It's kind of hard to say. I suppose I just realised, yeah, I'm just not getting this right, am I? I just, I have to change things. You know, I realised I just had to change things around. And I just thought about it for a while and thought, you know, tried to, to sort of, you know, look at, um, you know, the papers that I'd been researching and things and thinking, yeah, um, you know, there are things that the women tend to go for that are not right. Um, when I was looking at the personality research, that told me a lot and things around, you know, what we pick in terms of mate value, you know, we tend to think that we should go for the most gorgeous, good looking, richest, um, most extrovert guy going, you know, the, the person that's that's the best out there. But actually, that's a, a really bad thing to do, as I, I discovered, because, you know, if you go for someone that's highly desirable by a lot of other women, then they're going to know that, obviously. They're, they're going to feel quite entitled. And so if you try to get into a relationship with someone like that, they're not likely to maybe treat you in the way you want because they might think they can do better or they don't need to try very hard. It's really important to, you know, get together with someone of a, an equal mate value to yourself. And that is really difficult because this idea of equal mate value, we sort of all want to believe that you know, we have great mate value and we don't want to think, oh, well, actually I'll go down the pecking order, so to speak, because that's not really going to do very much for your self-esteem either. I mean, how do you actually work out what your mate value is? Yeah, I suppose that that's quite tricky. I mean, we, we tend to kind of get an idea of our mate value from the attention that we get from potential partners. But I think women in particular might get a kind of skewed idea of their mate value, especially once they get older, you know, especially maybe women who have been very successful in the past, you know, maybe they were 
you know, they've, they've been a beauty all their lives and they always had a, a long line of potential suitors lining up for them when they were younger. And maybe they've got a fantastic career and they're very successful and attractive. But the things that give a man mate value, high mate value, are not the same as the things that give women high mate value. So biology tells us that um, high reproductive value is, is attractive in women. So basically being good looking and youthful, whereas for a man it might be having a great career and high status. And so older men who are, you know, at the top of their game and are highly attractive, you know, they've kind of got their balls in their court at this time of life, whereas for women it tends to be when they're younger that they have that. So that might sound a bit depressing for older women. But it actu- does. <laughs> but actually, actually, it doesn't have to be because of what I think is you don't have to pick the high mate value guys because they're not necessarily the ones that are going to make you happy anyway. I don't think it's about settling. I think it's about reprioritizing and going for the qualities that are actually going to make you happy in the long term. So these aren't high status and fantastic career in, in your partner. These are things like, you know, is he considerate? Is, is he reliable? Does he care about your well-being? There's a, there's a quantity that gets um, talked about in psychology called the welfare trade-off ratio. What Ooh, you tell what, me about the welfare you, <laughs> trade-off ratio? What you want to find is a guy who has a high welfare trade-off ratio skewed in your favour. You know, it's not about what he gives you in terms of the amount. It's about how much he's willing to sacrifice his own benefit, uh, his 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 own stuff for your benefit. So you know, a guy with that high welfare trade-off ratio for you is going to be the one who, you know, you're out in a blizzard and he'll take the coat off his back to keep you warm. He'll he'll lie on your side of the bed to warm it up before you get in. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and and if he has that personality, then he's going to be great across the board. And if you can reciprocate that consideration, then you've got yourself a fantastic relationship. You're both invested and caring about each other. So these are the qualities that really matter. So it it doesn't matter that you might not be able to bag yourself the highest mate value guy because mate value is not the same as value as a partner. Mate value is about kind of the number of options you have out there, but it doesn't make, mean that you make those options happy. Yeah. And, and I think the nature of the internet is it's sort of su- suggesting that what you want to get coming through is a high number of people because there are a lot of people out there. You sort of feel you've got to attract lots of people. I've heard people say it's a numbers game. You've got to get, you've got to get as many fish in your net to find the good fish. Mm. Is that the wrong way of thinking about it? That actually you don't need to have a huge net with lots of fish in it. You just need to actually more like have a have a line and be finding individual men rather than thinking about getting a lot of men through the net. Uh, yeah, do you understand I, what I'm saying? I do. I do. I suppose both of those things are true in a sense. I mean, online dating is tricky. I'm, I'm not suggesting it's is the best way to meet a guy, especially for older women, because I think a lot of men put limits on themselves in terms of the age range they'll go for when in real life they may well be attracted to you. But I think from the point of view of just increasing the number of guys you're coming across and getting to assess, if you like, then doing some online dating will will help that number. So in that sense, it is a numbers game. But I'm not suggesting you should be trying to attract all of these people I think it's really important to be selective. And, and I think part of that is being yourself. You know, 
everyone's unique. We all have our unique traits and quirks. And some people might worry that their unique things might put people off, you know. So say, for example, you know, you've got a PhD in maths and you're a, a nerd and, you know, that that's what floats your boat. Tell people about it. That's fine. It will put some men off. Absolutely. It might put loads of men off. But Goodbye. <laughs> but the ones that like that kind of thing, you know, that they will love you for it and, and they're the right person for you. You know, whatever it is, you know, if you're a, a, a large lady who sings opera, tell people about it. If you're dog mad, tell people about it. You know, just whatever it is, your, your particular quirks, get those across. Because what the science shows us is that it's our uniqueness, it's our unique qualities that are far more important in a, um, being attractive to and keeping a relationship with somebody who is right for you. You know, and the rest don't really matter, do they? Because they're not right for you. You know, if, if they don't like your particular thing, then, you know, goodbye. <laughs> Everybody's talking at the moment about The Tindler Swindler, which is a series on Netflix. For people who haven't seen it, basically, there's this rich guy who has jets and cars and everything else, who is exceptionally, he's got exceptionally high mate value, because um, all these women flock to him. But uh, it doesn't go well. You've seen it as well. I mean, what what are your thoughts about yeah, it? Yeah, I've just seen a bit of it. But yeah, I mean, he's... <sighs> yeah, there, there are some very, very sketchy guys out there for sure. And, you know, they're the scammers like this Tinder swindler bloke. There are also men who are high in what's called the dark triad. That's a, a personality combination that's made up of narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. And it's as scary as it sounds. <laughs> So, you know, all of these guys are, they tend to, well, scammers are different because they tend to be after your money. The dark triad guys tend to be short-term strategists. So they're looking for just short-term kicks with you, but they will promise you the world, you know. So things start off amazingly. You get put on a pedestal, maybe showered with amazing gifts. You might have you know, a huge bunch of red roses turn up at your workplace, you'll get taken out for lovely meals. And they know all the right buttons to press, they'll say all the right things. And they, they do a thing that um, has been dubbed future faking, you know, sort of telling you the story about all the amazing things that are going to happen in the future, you know, this lovely life that you're going to have together. So they can be very convincing, and they can be very charming. But you really need to avoid them because they tend to be, as I say, that they're tend to, tending to look for just short-term relationship. There's a lot of infidelity. And it also goes along with things like intimate partner violence when we're talking about the, the dark triad. So people who are abusive tend to be high in this in this personality combination. So how do we spot them? Well, well that was just you got took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, we really need to avoid them. So the thing is some of these amazing things, you know, they could be true. That It's possible that you could meet someone that's absolutely wonderful and, and is just really into you right from the start and, you know, everything's great. However, I think the best rule of thumb really is if things seem too good to be true, they probably aren't true, you know, if, if it's just really over the top. And if he's jumping in far too early, inappropriately early, and, you know, you couldn't possibly have made up his mind that you are the love of his life within, you know, three dates or whatever. 48 hours. Yeah. So um, that's just unrealistic. But there, there are lots of other signs. You know, if he's 
if he's inconsistent in his approach, you know, so he's really wonderful most of the time, but then every now and again, he might slip up a little bit and you might see him when he thinks you're not looking, you know, making a, a sort of weird face or something when he's, you know, or he's horrible to somebody when he thinks you're not listening or he's insulting people. If you feel a bit uneasy, this I think this is one area where you can trust your gut instincts. If you're feeling a bit uneasy about someone, but you can't quite work out why, it may well be that you're picking up um, on things like micro expressions. Um, you might be picking up on subconsciously on, on things that aren't quite right. Other things to look out for are, does he include you in all the decisions he makes or does he just kind of decide everything for you? Is he mm. checking up on you all the time and starting to become a bit controlling? Does he want to kind of know where you are when you're not with him? You know, it might be dressed up as he's just concerned or he just wants to see how you're doing, but he's checking up on you. Does he start insulting your friends or your family? And that can kind of start isolating you from those people. Does he introduce you to his friends and family? You know, if you get to meet a guy's friends and family and they're saying good things about him and, you know, it all seems good from that point of view, then that's that's a really positive sign. But if he's, if he's keeping you away from those people, if he says they're, they're bad or something, then, you know, that's a bit of a red flag. So there, there are lots of signs. And, and it is far more common than um, we think because... Mm. You know, the Tindler swindler is a very extreme example, but yeah. uh, I know people who've been dragged into these sort of what I'd call Stockholm Syndrome kind of relationships mm. where they are actually controlling you, often by drama. If you leave them, then they're going to throw themselves off a cliff, you yeah. know, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it is, once you're hooked, it is really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's definitely a good a good plan to try and avoid it in the first place. So you have to look out for these signs and realise that these people exist out there. So so don't kind of be blown over or, you know, swept away by the initial romance because it could just be fabricated, you know, until he gets his feet under the table and then then the, the control starts and that's really bad. So one of your messages is don't wait for the universe to deliver a man. I mean, there are quite a lot of people who say things like, actually, it drives me up the wall as well. <laughs> if it's meant to be, it will be. Why does that get your your goat going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in Scotland here, they say, what's for you won't go by you. <laughs> and Ooh. I just think that's just bullshit. You know, because if, if you kind of wait around for things to happen, then it will indeed go by you. You know, I think we have to make some effort. We have to make our own luck by making opportunities. I mean, of course, meeting the right person involves an element of luck, but the more we can get ourselves out there, get ourselves into situations where we're going to be able to meet people, the more chance we have of meeting people. You know, it's not rocket science. And as far as the universe delivering the person, I'm not quite sure by what magical process that's supposed to happen, but... <laughs> But the, I, I don't trust it. <laughs> the universe has our postcode, doesn't it? So, of course, it's going to know how to find us. Yeah. So, tell me about how you met your husband. It's a singles night. Picture the scene. We're in a pub in Edinburgh. That's right. That's right. But the thing is, I nearly didn't go because it was a horrible, cold, wet January night. And um, it was actually a friend of mine had asked me to go along with her to sort of um, chum, chum along with her. 
And I couldn't be bothered. I, I was busy and I thought, it's never going to work. It's going to be rubbish. Um, but then, <laughs> then, then I said, I said to myself, literally, you've got to give yourself opportunities, Mary. This is when I'm, I'm going into my new way of doing things. Yeah, I know I'm a bit weird, but I said that to myself. And so, I, you know, I got myself dressed up and off we went. So what was it like when you arrived at this singles pub in Edinburgh? I have to tell you, it sounds <laughs> ghastly. <laughs> yeah, well, we went up to the bar and we got our, our free glass of fizz or um, whatever it was and kind of looked looked around. And it was quite funny because it was sort of reasonably early in the evening and there was a few guys in the pub all sort of dotted around singly at, you know, tables of their own, like they're, they're sort of, they've got their own little territories. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was quite funny. And, you know, it was kind of a little bit intimidating about, you know, how are we going to approach any of these people? And this is where I eventually met my now husband. Um, mm. And I, I spotted him at a table just sort of a bit away from the bar. But I was thinking, how do I, how do I approach this guy? So before we talk about that, mm. I mean, what did you think of? First look, what did you think? Was your heart in your mouth? Um, no, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> he knows that I completely love and adore him <laughs> now, but at, at the time when I first met him, you know, it wasn't a case of, wow, you know, he looks absolutely amazing. I thought, you know, he looks nice. I'd quite like to have a chat with him. But yeah, so, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of, you know, that kind of looking across the, the bar and eyes locking and love at first sight or anything like and that. And then suddenly the music starts and you <laughs> run across the beach to each other or run across the bar to each other. Yes. No. So how, how does female monkey get to male monkey yes. in the, the jungle of singles pub on a wet, cold night in January in Edinburgh? <laughs> yes. So this is a tricky one. And um, before I get to that, the, the thing that we were saying about, you know, not waiting for your man to be delivered. The other problem with that is that if we wait for guys to approach us and only, you know, only speak to people that actually present themselves to us, we're only getting a very small kind of section of the male population. You know, it tends to be the confident guys, the guys with the moves, you know, maybe the guys who are very practiced and chatting women up. And they might not be the kind of guy you actually want to be with. The nice guys, the guys with a high level of the personality factor agreeableness, you know, those are the empathetic ones, the considerate ones. They tend to be a little bit more hesitant. They might not have that massive confidence to come forward. And you might think, well, you know, if they haven't got the balls to approach me, then, you know, I'm not interested. But the thing is, you know, if you think about it, if they, if they are considerate, especially in these days of, you know, me too, and all these kind of things, they don't want to come across as a creep. So they're, a little bit more hesitant. And so we have to kind of make ourselves more approachable, you know, have open body language, smile, make eye contact, and lots of eye contact, because a lot of guys don't realise what you're doing at all if you just like glance at them. <laughs> but um, you can't be too obvious. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so you have to make it a bit easier for them and get close to them, physically close to them. I mean, it's not rocket science, it sounds obvious, but you want to, to increase your opportunities. It is rocket science because, you know, it might only be a few feet between the two of you, but it might as well be a hundred miles. Mm. So how did you sort of well, get yourself 
into his orbit. So yeah, to speak. well, what happened was, yeah, I, I did want to go and speak to him, but I didn't feel like just crossing the floor and, and saying hi. So what then happened was a, a bunch of women came into the bar and they sort of settled themselves at the same table as him, but opposite. And I happened to know one of them. So I had the opportunity then. I went up to speak to her. Oh, hello. And then kind of sidled around the table and introduced myself to Rob. And, um, you know, we got talking and that's what started things off. But it was quite funny because just recently, you know, I was thinking about, would he have approached me if I hadn't approached him? Because he'd already told me that he'd seen me come into the bar and, he, you know, he liked what he saw. So I asked him, do you think he would have come up to me if I hadn't made the first move? And he thought about it and he said, maybe not. <laughs> and I thought, if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't made that move, you know, I wouldn't have this amazing relationship. I mean, he's the love of my life. And, mm. you know, I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't made that effort. And so many women think it's the job of the man to make the first move. And I think the other thing that I find really interesting is that the desire happened gradually. You know, yes. we've now got the two of you together, but you're not thinking, you know, that this is future husband material. You know, you're just talking to each other. You didn't think he was the one, did you? No. Um, so so we got chatting and I thought he's nice. He's, you know, he's interesting. I was curious to know more about him. But it wasn't like, you know, instant chemistry or sparks going off or anything like that. But we did decide to keep in touch because he was going to come to some workshops that I was running. So I, I, I managed to pass my card over. So that's always a good thing to have, you know, some, some way of, of keeping in contact. So, you know, something that you can, you can do like that. So we got to know each other over the next few weeks because he was coming to this weekly class that I did every Thursday evening. And what was the class on? It was about attraction and relationships. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it was sort of different to what I'm doing now. It was a bit more just looking at the sort of science of it rather than, you know, actually sort of helping coach people. And th this was for men and women of any age, whereas now I'm, I'm doing programmes for, you know, midlife women specifically to, to help them find a partner. But yeah, so he came along to these these classes and had lots of conversations. And I thought, mm, he's quite nice, but you know, I'm not sure if I fancy him. And he seems to like me, I'm not quite sure, but I think he might. But then eventually he told me about a music evening that was coming up at a pub. And this was just towards the end of the classes. And he plays ukulele in this group and sings. And I thought, I know that I really go for a guy that's good at music. <laughs> so I'm going to go and ah. see what this is like. And Maybe that'll do the trick. And so I went along to this music evening in the pub and, you know, got to about the end of the second song. And I thought, yep, I'm smitten now. <laughs> this will do me fine. You know, because basically because he was showing his confidence, his area of confidence. He is a great singer and he was completely owning the place. And, you know, that's kind of what did it for me. And this is this is something that I tell women, you know, look for your man's area of confidence because that can really make a difference to how you feel about him, how, how you desire him. And, you know, it could be that, you know, he might be a great musician or he might be a great teacher and give authoritative lectures. And, and also, if you see other people being impressed with a guy, that is a real game changer in terms of your attraction to that person. So I think it's really worth getting to know someone over time. I mean, the other thing about that is that if you get to know someone gradually and you like them and you like their personality and you know, their sense of humour and so on, you actually start to find them physically more attractive. 
So you can come to desire them over time. So I think a lot of women are very quick to judge. And, you know, if there's no spark, there's no chemistry right away, it's like, oh, well, that's not going to work then. But if you like this person, you know, get to know them as a friend, first of all, and then see how things develop. If it doesn't turn into anything, you've got a friend and that's a good thing too. But, you know, see what happens. It, it might actually go places. And if this guy has good qualities that would make him a good long-term partner, then that could be a really, really good strategy. Excellent. So we're going to look at five things that evolutionary biology taught you about dating, because I think we need to get ourselves a strategy together for this. So your first step is to understand the type of man you need. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, we, we've kind of touched on this. You know, you might think that you need someone who's really tall, six foot four, and he's got a, a six pack and he's got a stellar career and a huge salary. And a full head of hair. And a full head of hair. <laughs> That's often one that women expect. But at this kind of age, that might be challenging. <laughs> the other thing that men hate that women do is if you're under a certain height, yeah. they c- completely and utterly dismiss them as if, you know, unless you, if you're under, I don't know, five foot six, that you don't exist. I've never really understood that one. but um, Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a real deep-seated one for a lot of women. They won't consider someone that's, you know, not as tall as them or they want someone that's considerably taller. You know, this harks back to our evolved motivations again. You know, back in the day, we wanted a big, strong, tough guy to to kind of defend us and look after us and also, you know, be able to compete with other other men for resources. But, you know, nowadays, we don't need that sort of thing. We don't need to, <laughs> to have a, a tall guy for any particularly good reason. And, you know, if a guy has all the characteristics you want and can give you a fantastic relationship, imagine rejecting him then, on, you know, just because you can't wear your high heels and still be <laughs> less tall than he is. It's, it's really not that important. So the things to really focus on, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm not expecting you to settle, but it's about reprioritising. It's about focusing on the qualities that really matter for a, a good relationship. And that means you're looking for someone who's considerate and has your welfare at heart. So number one, understand the type of man you need, and it might not be exactly what you first think about. The second one is have patience not an easy thing to have when it comes to dating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've certainly experienced this in the past where, you know, you meet a really sexy guy and you just want to jump into bed with him. And I, I don't have any moral argument against this at all. But one thing that does happen, you know, once you start getting intimate with somebody, that sets off a whole bunch of neurotransmitters in your brain. You know, your oxytocin levels rise, your dopamine spikes, you get beta endorphin going on, you get attached to this person. This all kind of conspires to attach you to this person. And if you haven't got to know them yet, you don't know if you are going to want to have a a relationship or if they're good material for a good long-term relationship, but you'll be attached anyway. So if they don't you know, have the criteria that you need, then you're kind of stuck with that because you're going to find it very hard to extract yourself from the relationship. Number three, bite the bullet with online dating. I assume that some sites are better than others. Do you recommend certain sites and suggest people stay away from others? Um, I don't really have recommendations. Well, I mean, I can mention a few things like eHarmony, Bumble, Restless is another one that people have said to me um, they like. But what I found with the, the women that I'm working with is 
there's a huge variety of experience. Some have had good experiences on one site and others have had bad experiences. I think it's very individual and there is a lot of luck involved. You know, it depends on, on who kind of comes up. What I would say is it's good if you can pick a site where you can search for guys yourself. You don't just get presented with what they decide because the, the, the algorithms don't work, basically. So it's up to you to look at men's profiles and see if you can suss out whether they seem like a good option. But in terms of, you know, how to write your own profile, I think it's really important to get specific things in there. Don't be generic. Don't just try to blandify yourself and, you know, be attractive to everybody. It's that, that thing we were saying before about uniqueness being important. But also get specific suggestions in there for things you like to do. You know, challenge him saying, you know, um, I'll be really impressed if you can hike up to the top of this hill with me or or whatever. And then that gives him something to respond with. You know, he might not like hiking and he might, but he can still respond to the specific things you're saying. And that gives you a way of kind of testing men right away on how they respond to what you're saying in your profile. If they get in touch with you with some generic message, hi, how are you doing? You know, um, what do you do for fun sort of thing? Then you kind of know that he hasn't bothered to read your profile and he's not homing in on you specifically. He's probably sent that to everybody. So therefore he might not be in the market for a, a, a kind of proper relationship. He might be just, you know, playing the field. But if you get someone that that really kind of picks up on things you're saying in your profile, specific things, and has something to say about them, then that's kind of a good first filter, if you like. It gives you something to go on. So the next thing to do is talk to men in the real world. I think this is something that a lot of older women actually discount, they say. And actually, to be perfectly honest, I've had older men who've done this as well. They've told me there's no single women in Cornwall. And I think, somehow I don't believe that. (laughs) that there are real people that you come across all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just, it's, it's that thing of, of making opportunities that I was talking about. You have to get yourself out there. Do things you enjoy doing, you know, join classes and clubs and do do stuff that you like, because then you'll, you know, meet up with people with similar interests to yourself. Try and pick things with a good proportion of men in them. That's not just because there'll be plenty of men. It's also because you'll get a different quality of attention from the men than if they're in very short supply. That's something that the biological research shows us. You know, if if there's very few men and lots of women, then women are the ones that have to kind of compete and, you know, men might not treat them in the way, or you might not start off the conversation in the way you would like. And then we go also go back to that thing of, of being approachable, you know, if you're meeting up with a friend in a cafe or something, you know, maybe arrive a bit early so that you're on your own for a while and you could potentially talk to people and and get into the habit of talking to people everywhere, not just men or desirable men, but everybody. Just get into the habit of striking up conversations, you know, say in the queue for a coffee, you know, at Starbucks or whatever. And that will get you into the habit of making contact with people. And then if you do happen to get a chance to speak to someone that you quite like, it's not so difficult because you're in the habit of it. And I've got one really good piece of advice is yeah. put the phone down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Put your phone down. Just sit sit and, you know, survey the scene and, and again, make eye contact, smile at people. You know, you could do things like, say you're, say you're in a cafe and, you know, you're going to go and get a coffee. You see someone you like, 
oh, could you just watch my laptop while I go and get a coffee? And then you're asking for a little bit of investment and that kind of starts off things in a nice way. Or could you just reach that thing up on the shelf? You know, that cake that I would like, you know, I can't quite reach it. <laughs> you're a very tall guy. <laughs> I know. it's, it's like, Oh, I seem to have dropped my handkerchief. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know it sounds daft. It's not going to, it's not going to upset your feminist credentials just by asking for a little bit of help with something. It just starts the conversation off in a kind of nice, friendly way. And then you can go from there and just make sure you've got a card to hand over at some point. (laughs) And number five, we've had understand the type of man you need, have patience, bite the bullet with online dating, talk to men in the real world. And this one is really important. Get your self-esteem sorted, because if you're looking to men to give you a boost of self-esteem, I think you're probably looking in the wrong place. Mm, Yes, yes. That is definitely something to get sorted at the beginning because basically when you have them, good self-esteem and confidence are your most powerful tools in finding the right guy. Because, you know, if you have low self-esteem, you'll tend to kind of put up with crap basically because you might think you can't get anything else. But if you have good self-esteem, then you're going to be confident about what you're looking for and what your boundaries are, and you won't let people cross those. So in terms of boosting your self-esteem, I think the first thing is understanding that, you know, we're all different and we're all different in what we like and what we're attracted to, you know, body types, personalities, everything. We tend to get an idea that, you know, we have to have a certain body type, uh, we have to have a certain weight and type of hair and things to be attractive, but that's just not the case. You know, we're, we're all very different in what we're looking for. And we've evolved to be different because, you know, different things are good in different situations. And that comes to, you know, that applies to personality as well. So understand that there are going to be a sort of cohort of men that would be attracted to someone like you. So you can be confident in that. But also, I guess, you know, for women, that are a bit bit later in life, you know, we can lose confidence. And a good thing to do is talk to your friends about what your good qualities are, what good things do you bring to the table. Think about it yourself. You you know, you might know that you are a good, trustworthy friend or you're a really good cook or, you know, it could be anything. But make a list of your good qualities and and things that, you know, a guy would be really lucky to to have with you. And and there definitely will be some things. You know, write down three things each day that you like yourself for, or you would like other people for if they did them. You know, you'll start noticing more and more good things that you do, and you'll, you'll start having more confidence in yourself and your attractiveness and ability to attract people. But I think, you know, one of the, the main things is when you meet somebody that you quite like, you shouldn't be asking yourself, you know, have I got what it takes to be attracted to this person? You know, can I make him like me? What you need to be asking is, has this guy got what it takes to have a good relationship with me, to make me happy, for me to have a, a happy relationship? Don't forget that you are a selector too. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> the Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. 
One of the parts that I enjoy the most of uh, The Meaningful Life is getting your letters and your dilemmas, the things that um, you need help with. And if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, at the bottom of that page, you will find something that allows you to write into us with your dilemmas, what you need help with, and myself and my witnesses see if we can help you with it. And this is what we have this time. It's from a woman. I seem to have lost confidence in myself. I'm not certain if it is life that has ground me down or I'm just being more realistic. But when I was younger, I thought nothing could touch me. Now I'm older, late 50s, everything seems harder and I feel more vulnerable. I'm not certain if it's that slightly older friends are getting cancer and dying or my own children are full of energy and optimism, but I long for the years when I could set off for a night of adventure without really planning anything, just a vague idea of hooking up with this or that group of friends. Today, I go through a million and one doubts before arranging a weekend break with my husband. More often than not, I shut down an idea before I've really thought it through. It seems too dangerous, too unknown, too much, like there is some dark force lurking out there and it's getting closer. So, what was your thought when you read this, Mari? Yeah, well, well, thank you for to the listener for sending the letter. You know, I can relate to what you're saying. The thing is, when we're younger and we don't have responsibilities, you know, we don't have children depending on us, we have the freedom to be more risk-taking and spontaneous and so on. You know, we've evolved to take more risks as youngsters because that brings us opportunities. You know, we also have the energy at that time of life to kind of fly by the seat of our pants. You know, if we get into a tricky situation, we're able to put up with a bit of discomfort for a while until we get out of it again. Maybe not so much when we're older, you know, when we have less energy and maybe a few aches and pains and stuff. Yeah, when you're young, if you get stranded in an airport and, you know, you sit on a bench overnight, you know, I'm afraid to say now I'd like a bed for the night. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's it. So, you know, as we get older, we kind of accrue responsibility, we get more risk averse, basically. I know that that's happened to me big time when I started having children. You know, up until that mm. time, I've been happy to travel the world on my own, you know, trog around the jungle, do all sorts of stuff by myself. And, you know, I also did various sort of slightly risky sports like rock climbing and skiing and scuba diving and so on. And wow. And I also felt that I could make friends wherever I went. You know, I could go to somewhere completely new and not worry about it. But then once I became a single mum and had small kids to look after, that all changed. You know, I became a lot more kind of protective and um, risk averse, I would say. It's actually been shown in the personality research that we tend to increase in our personality factor conscientiousness as we get older. So that means we sort of plan, we get organised and we don't do so much spontaneous stuff. And that tendency has evolved for a reason. You know, it helps us protect our families from risk. But I'm guessing that the letter writer, you know, maybe she's got to a stage where her kids have grown up and perhaps it is time now to embrace adventure again and spontaneity a bit more. But sort of confidence in getting out there, you know, it's a bit like a muscle. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. I think a lot of us, including me, have experienced this sort of loss of confidence during the pandemic. That applies to a lot of women I work with as well. You know, it's so important to work on getting this confidence back so that we can get out there and meet people. You know, I know my social circle has really contracted over the last couple of years and I'm going to have to work on bringing that back. But it is a bit scary. You know, I've lost a bit of social confidence. 
And I think the trick here is to keep pushing the boundaries, you know, baby steps first and then getting more and more adventurous. So I think to the letter writer, I would say, you know, you're in your comfort zone, but your comfort zone's far too small and restrictive for, you know, what you want. And I think our comfort zone shrinks as well. Yeah. Exactly. So we like to think our comfort zone is going to stay the same place, but actually, unless you're pushing at the edge yeah. of it, it is actually shrinking back and back. And if you're not careful, you know, you're going to be stuck at home. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would suggest, you know, gradually pushing that that comfort zone back. And, you know, I'd suggest organising small things, first of all, you know, maybe go for dinner to a new restaurant that you haven't tried before with your husband, rather than the weekend away, first of all. Try an activity you haven't tried before, but maybe something that seems to begin with relatively safe. If you make an effort to do, say, you know, one new thing a week or a month, then gradually it becomes easier and you become more adventurous. You know, maybe take a day out and visit a new town by yourself without a plan or an agenda. Just explore and see what you find. You know, gradually the unknown will become less of a dark force and more of an energising pleasure. But, you know, it's about taking baby steps, basically, I think, is what I'd say. And I'm really fascinated by this image of the dark force lurking out there and getting closer. Generally, our instinct is if there's a dark force, we run in the opposite direction. And this is a theme on quite a lot of my podcasts, that actually, if you face that feeling and sort of make friends with it, embrace it however you want to think about it, Sometimes it's got a message to you that is actually really important. So, you know, how much of this is what's happening today? How much of it is old stuff that you have never really looked at because, you know, life has been too busy? Because if we're right that your children need you less, suddenly you've got all this time. And into that time and attention can come unresolved things from the past that actually need to be addressed. So I would sort of, and you might need some help with a therapist to do this, but actually see what those dark forces are, you know, see if you can name some of those things, because it could be there is old stuff that you thought, oh, that happened 30, 40 years ago. Why do I need to trouble that? It could be it's coming to you because it needs to be sorted out. That's just my sort of little instinct that is saying, I think everything that Mari is saying is like the most wonderful advice in the world. So do all of that. But at the very same time, I sort of can't get away from that image of a dark force lurking out there. I think you want to try and know a little bit more about it and see if it's actually got a message for you. And that might be something that is going to be really important going forward. You know, that there's a whole chunk of your life still to come. So let's not go through the rest of it worrying about things lurking around the outside. Let's actually see what they are, because generally they're far less frightening when you invite them in than when they're lurking around outside. But obviously you need to do it in a a safe kind of manner. So I hope that was helpful for you. And if you would like to write in to us, there are details at the end of the programme. So I have to say thank you very much, Mari, for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. And as the witness, I have to turn the tables on you and ask, what makes your life meaningful? Ah, now this is a good question, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I think probably in common with everyone, 
maybe the main thing that makes my life meaningful are my close relationships. You know, my husband, my kids, um, the rest of my family and my close friendships. You know, it's true for everyone. We've evolved that way. You know, our, our social relationships are the most important thing in our lives when, you know, for, for our happiness and our health and longevity. My life is made meaningful through, through spending time with my closest people, hopefully setting a good example to my kids. I guess wanting to win their approval as well. And, you know, hopefully they might like some of the things I'm doing. But, you know, as I say, I think that... I, do, I don't want you to win their approval. I want you to win your own approval. <laughs> yes, that too, I guess. <laughs> that too. But for, for me in particular, you know, I, I would think that that's something that's common with most people. But for me in particular, my big thing is I get a huge kick from using an understanding of our evolved behaviour to apply to issues in the real world. And, you know, it goes back to the fact that a lot of our behaviours and motivations evolved during a, a time very different from the world today. So we need to take into account our underlying biology when designing ways of helping people or even running the world. You know, I'm, I'm really privileged to be at the vanguard of this enterprise and that makes my life meaningful. You know, especially when women that I've worked with with the Dating Evolve project tell me how, you know, they're getting into a fantastic new relationship that wouldn't have happened had they not done the, the programme or, or, you know, gone through this. Or, you know, sometimes I've had messages from women a few months down the line when, you know, they've been in relationships and they're telling me about things that they're now doing with a partner that they always had to do as a singleton. And now it's it's great. So I'm, I'm thinking just something that's popping into my head just now is I got a message just before Christmas from one of the ladies I've been working with. And she said that she was putting up her Christmas tree with her guy. And she said, it's so oh. nice to not be doing this alone. And that just made me tear up a bit. <laughs> But it, it's such a privilege to be able to to help people in that way. And I, I love doing that. So with all my guests, you'll find there's um, show notes, all the details of Mari and uh, her programme are all in the show notes. So have a look at that. And unfortunately, this is where we have to end the conversation, but not if either you join and become a member of the Supporters Circle, or if you are on Apple Podcasts, you can buy just the bonus material. If you want to find out details of um, how to become a supporter and to be able to listen to all of the bonus material that comes along with each of my guests, the details will come along in a moment. What will you find in the bonus material? Well, you're going to find the three things that Mari knows deep down to be true. And I think we should actually talk, Mari, about how to know you're actually ready to date again, because there's no point going off on a date holding a whole load of old baggage along with you. Mm. So we'll be talking about that. If you want to find out more details about that, here is all the information you'll need. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.